Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. Today's show topic is a novel, personalized, integrative approach to cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. Our guest today is Dr. Dale E. Bredesen, MD. He's a neurologist from the Mary S. Easton Center for Alzheimer's Disease Research at UCLA. He is also at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in Novato, California. Dr. Bredesen wrote a very interesting article entitled Reversal of Cognitive Decline, a Novel Approach in Aging in September 2014. And to me, it's landmark, and it gives hope to me that uh, we can approach a difficult, complex problem such as Alzheimer's disease. So welcome, Dr. Bredesen. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Kirk. So Alzheimer's disease, what is the, the morbidity mortality now in 2016? What, what are we looking at? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge problem. And the number that's typically quoted is that there are 5.2 million Americans estimated to have Alzheimer's currently. But that's actually a misleading number because most people, of course, are too young to know that they're going to get it. So I think the more important number... Uh, which isn't talked about enough, is that if you look at the 318 million current Americans living and ask how many of us will get Alzheimer's disease during our lifetime, the answer is about 45 million of the currently living Americans either have it now or will get it during their lifetime. So as you can see, it's a huge number. It's about 15% of the population. And recently it was shown that it is likely to be the third leading cause of death after cardiovascular disease and cancer. So a major problem and a growing problem. Why do you think the U.S. and industrialized countries are experiencing more Alzheimer's disease? Is it just another chronic disease or is it a separate entity in and of itself? Well, I think you, you, know, you put your finger on it there that the, there are chronic illnesses which are the major things that are leading to morbidity and mortality in the industrial world. Uh, so I think it is one of the chronic illnesses that we are seeing more and more in the, in the Western world. So I, I shared this um, with Dr. Martha Morris about how my perception is that patients, you know, they're not as afraid of cancer, they're not as afraid of heart disease, but they're really afraid of Alzheimer's disease because their perception is there is no treatment approach. And so number one, is is that your perception? And number two is then the traditional approaches, the monotherapies, are they working? So it's a two-part question. So uh, this is a, a, you know, a problem that has been uh, untreatable until now. Um, of course, as you could see from the article, I disagree with that currently, but of course that's been the goal. That uh, Our paper of a year ago was the first to show that we could reverse cognitive decline in people with early Alzheimer's disease or with MCI, mild cognitive impairment, or SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. Um, we uh, we reported the first 10. We now have over 100 have come through, and we're seeing similar results time and time again. This comes from 25 years in the laboratory of looking at what are the drivers mechanistically for that particular problem. Uh, one of the things that came out of the research addresses the second part of your question. Why have monotherapies failed so so miserably? Um, if you uh, you know if you look at biomedical research, you could argue that the area of greatest failure is in the, the failure to find medicines that help neurodegenerative illnesses. We've been more successful with cancer. We've been more successful with with the heart disease. And as you indicated, 
it is the number one concern now of people as they age will I lose my cognitive function because there's been so little to do about it what we found in our research is that if you look at the underlying pathways that lead ultimately to what we call Alzheimer's disease and of course the the biochemistry is going on for 15 or 20 years before you actually have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So this is, a, again, like other chronic illnesses, it's going on for quite some time. If you look at those pathways, in fact, they have many, many different inputs. We initially identified in the network uh, 36 different pieces, which is why we say imagine a roof with 36 holes in it. Um, you to, to make sure that you're doing well with a, with a dry floor, you'd have to patch all 36 holes. And so monotherapies are like patching one hole. It really doesn't make a huge difference. It does make a, a small difference, but it doesn't make a huge difference. On the other hand, if you address all of the many inputs to that critical balance, which is literally a balance of plasticity, the balance between making and storing and maintaining memories, versus reorganizing, literally forgetting, which is going on all the time. If you look at that and ask what biochemistry and genetics contribute to that balance, then you find that there are dozens and dozens of inputs. We believe ultimately there will be something like 50, 60, something like that. We know the first 36, uh, and um, there are likely to be a few more, but we don't think it's going to be 500 or 1,000. So that the idea then is just as with other chronic illnesses, you probably will need a set of things, a cocktail. And think for a minute about what happened with HIV, which is a much simpler illness. One medicine did not do very well, but of course three together, triple therapy, has done remarkably well. Now imagine that Alzheimer's is much more complicated, which it is. Um, maybe it's going to take 10 or 15 or 20, whatever. It's going to take more than one we believe, for optimal uh, therapy for Alzheimer's disease. But certainly with what we've done uh, with this combination, um, we see repeatedly people improving. Uh, we've seen now people with dramatic increases in hippocampal volume, and that's something that, is, that cannot be a placebo effect to see large increases in your hippocampal volume. People who have dramatic improvements uh, in their neuropsych quantitative testing. So repeatedly we're seeing improvements with this sort of a systemic approach, a really a network-driven approach. So the term, I heard it first when Dr. Bland interviewed you, neuroplasticity, and you, and you made me feel better because you said people can occasionally forget, and that's, that's normal, that we come and go. So what is the term, you know, I, I think a lot of people think of neurons as just they're, they're alive or they're dead and you don't get them back. So what does neuroplasticity mean? Right. So this is no different than your social network. You know, you're continually adding and subtracting from your social network, and the neurons are doing the same thing. They have all sorts of processes, so they interact with others. You have a tremendous, about uh, 10 to the 15th, so you have about one quadrillion synapses. These are contacts where one neuron is speaking to another chemically uh, in your brain. So you have a tremendous supercomputer in your brain with about 10 to the 15th connections. And throughout your life, of course, you are actively adding and subtracting all the time. You're actively forgetting you know, the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday and all sorts of other things. Uh, and at the same time, you're remembering where your keys are and things like that. So you have this tremendous change that's ongoing all the time. And of course, 
uh, when you are developing cognitive decline associated with developing Alzheimer's in the long run, uh, the first thing that typically goes is the ability to add new information so that uh, you have someone who's still capable of remembering who their first grade teacher was, for example, uh, or how to drive or how to add and subtract, but they now can't remember what their wife or husband or son or daughter had told them a half an hour ago. How about there's a term you talked about or a concept that's treating as far upstream as possible um, in, this, in, in your approach. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So think about it for a minute. You know, our, if, you, if you look at the history of medicine, um, we have, first of all, had very small data sets for dealing with a very, very complex organism. So we may know things like your sodium, your potassium, and things like that, but we really know need to know much, much more than that. Genome, epigenome, proteome, metabolome, these sorts of things. And so larger data sets are now becoming available. Uh, and uh, you know, as, we, as we're able to do this, we want to ask, why did you get the disease? Doctors classically have just said what it is. Um, is it congestive heart failure? Is it a broken leg? What is it? But now in 21st century medicine, there's a, a fundamental change. We need to ask not only what it is, is it Alzheimer's, is it SCI, MCI, or something else, but also why. Why did you get this? What are the things that are driving this problem? Because it really doesn't make a lot of sense to try to treat it without understanding why you are getting it. Um, here's an example. Often, uh, Alzheimer's is often associated with uh, with glucose metabolism, and of course, if you have type 2 diabetes, in fact, your chance of getting Alzheimer's is actually doubled. So if you have poor glucose metabolism and you're running a very high fasting blood sugars and very high hemoglobin A1Cs and very high fasting insulins, why would you treat the cognitive decline and not address what is actually driving it? So you want to get it again. It's just like if, if you've got a headache because you're smacking your head many times per day, you know, against the wall. Someone says, here, take an aspirin and keep smacking your head against the wall. It doesn't make any sense. So you want to go upstream and ask why. And that's really what functional medicine has brought to the table. Jeffrey and, and many others, uh, David Jones and others with whom uh, Jeff has worked over the years, have brought the question of why to medicine so that you can address this. And, and it turns out, of course, you can op often address these chronic illnesses with many things that are part of our civilization, uh, processed foods, poor sleeping, tremendous amounts of stress. That plus understanding the background genetics tells you why did you get the disease instead of just trying to take away the symptom, which is fine for the short run, but really doesn't do you much good in the long run. Can you share with us your study that you did uh, in uh, aging, where you talked, you had the ten patients with early cognitive decline, and 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 what you did for those patients. So after looking at the basic mechanisms for many many years, uh, we were able to show that we could improve transgenic mice initially, um, and when we started to study the network that actually drives the changes that ultimately result in Alzheimer's disease, what we could see is that at the center of this is a molecule called APP, amyloid precursor protein. And that's the one that's been known for years to give rise to the amyloid that's in characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. And of course, many of the treatments have focused on just removing the amyloid. And so 
The analogy that we typically make is that APP, which is the parent of this amyloid, is a little bit like the CFO of a company. It is looking at all the different inputs to ask whether you have enough support on a day-to-day -day basis to allow your, quote, company, your My Brain Inc., to make new connections. And so what it really shows is that there is a programmatic downsizing that occurs when you don't have enough support. This entire network is not supported um, as you age, if, if you're in a certain you know, genetic groups and, and uh, lifestyle and so forth and so on, that there are many things that contribute to this. But ultimately, the APP will make the decision. Now, if it makes the decision that you're in good shape, you've got enough coming in, you can, uh, quote, afford new memories, then it will send out a memo. And that memo consists of two peptides. The APP is cleaved to make a molecule called SAPP-alpha and alpha-CTF. And what those two things do, one's for external consumption and the other one's internal, and they basically say, we're doing well. Again, nothing, no different than what you'd see in a report in Forbes, for example. What it says is, we're in good shape, and we can allow new synapses to form because we have enough support to handle new synapses. On the other hand, if the APP detects with all the inputs that there is not enough support, it sends out four memos, different ones, uh, two for the public and two internal. And these are called SAPP-beta, A-beta, J-casp, and C31. Those four literally tell the neurites you cannot make new connections right now. So whereas the first set actually supports connections, supports growth, um, and supports maintenance, the second one causes actually pulling back of the interactions between the neurons. And so when you get those, you basically are unable, the first thing, you're unable to make new memories. And if you think about it, if someone said to you, Kirk, okay, you have a choice now. You can either remember how to drive and speak and add and subtract, but forget the Friends rerun from last night, or you can remember the Friends rerun from last night but forget how to do some of these other things. Which would you choose? So obviously, you choose to keep the memories. The ones that you have stored over your life have mm -hmm. been selected. You've kept the most important stuff to keep as long-term memories. So the chance that the next thing coming in is going to be as important as those is low. So what happens, and again, just like in a company, what's the first thing that goes? It's the temporary cubicles. That's basically the hippocampus. That's why hippocampal volume is affected early. And by the way, it's relatively plastic. And so, in fact, you can bring it back, as we've seen with these people, when you do the right things. Now, of course, over time, if you don't go upstream, as you were saying earlier, if you don't fix the reason for the problem, you will continue to downsize. So what we looked at then was, what are all the things that contribute to this balance? And what we found at the molecular level is that everything from your hormonal status, your vitamin status, your exercise status, the cortisol, and things related to stress factors, nutritional items, uh, sleeping, uh, melatonin, all of these things contribute to that absolutely critical balance. 
And on the other hand, things that you're doing wrong can contribute on the other side of that. So the whole idea of the program that we called MEND, Metabolic Enhancement for Neurodegeneration, was to change that balance, to do everything possible to reduce things on the bad side and to increase things on the positive side to allow people once again to store new memories. And what we found is it takes a few months, so the first thing that happens is they have to correct the metabolic changes. You can measure those. You can measure the metabolic abnormalities. And by the way, everyone we've seen who is symptomatic has between 10 and 25 metabolic abnormalities or suboptimal uh, metabolic uh, numbers in their profile. And so we address those. Once those are fixed, it takes a couple of months for people to notice, oh, wait a minute, I can, I can start to remember things again. And uh, as we've seen again and again and again, as the metabolism goes, so goes the cognition. Let me uh, ask a few questions about some of those specifics. So let's, I think everybody would agree one of your things is to control, have good glycemic control, low glycemic foods. And it makes perfect sense to me. Now, you have the low-grain approach. Is there something, because you can, I mean, I know people who've reversed bad diabetes with whole grains and stuff like that. So is there something in grains in and of themselves that are detrimental aside from the glycemic issue? So you bring up a really good point. And for some people, as you said, um, grains aren't much of a problem, but for many people they are, especially people who are sensitive to them. And so we actually have started with a couple of approaches. One was Dr. Joel Furman's approach because he's done so well with glycemic index and with improving glycemic load, and that is a critical piece. Again and again and again, we see that people who have cognitive changes, early Alzheimer's, do have poor uh, glycemic control, and typically they do have high fasting insulins and high fasting uh, blood sugars and high hemoglobin A1Cs. And in fact, uh, if you look at what's called neural exosomes, where you're actually looking at tiny fragments of brain cells that break off, you have 1.2 billion of these exosomes in every cc of your blood. It's, it's amazing how many of these things there are. They're very tiny. They're about 100 nanometers. And Professor Ed Getzel from UCSF has done some very interesting studies showing that when he isolates those, um, and if you look at the ones in the blood, about 10% of them come from neurons, and the other 90% come from, of course, other organs and things like that. But if he takes the ones that are neural, and then he looks specifically at the signaling profile, uh, and you can look specifically at how, you ha how your insulin signaling work. Are you insulin resistant or are you insulin sensitive? And of course, insulin resistance is associated ultimately with type 2 diabetes. Then what he finds is that insulin resistance is universal with people who have Alzheimer's disease. Even if they didn't have it peripherally, they have it centrally when they have Alzheimer's. And this is not to say that Alzheimer's is just, quote, type 3 diabetes. This has been a common thing. We, we believe that it's much more complicated than that. But that is one of the important contributors uh, to this problem. So we look at that particular aspect and look at other parts of glycemic control. Now, this gets back to your point about, about nutrition and about diet. We're still 
trying to refine the diet because in some people um, it is fine to have some grains and others it's not. So we typically ask people to look to see whether they are sensitive to grains. And of course, many are, but not all. Um, and in those who are sensitive, as long as they're continuing with grains, they're going to have things like leaky gut, they're going to have some inflammation, and in fact, of course, chronic inflammation drives the same, uh, the same imbalance. In fact, if we back up for one moment and ask, how does this imbalance work? How do you go from the side of the two peptides that are telling you go ahead and make memories to the three peptides, to the four peptides that are, that are telling you pull back? What you find is, that organisms as a whole, including humans, make change that balance. They make the amyloid for one of three reasons. And that really tells us type 1, type 2, and 3 Alzheimer's disease. So number one, they make that change. They make this amyloid to fight infections and as part of inflammation. So as long as you having, have ongoing infections or inflammation, then you will be making that amyloid. Number two, they make it because of trophic factor withdrawal. So you withdraw things like BDNF, a nerve growth factor, for example, vitamin D, estradiol, testosterone, all these things, when you withdraw that trophic support for the brain, brain responds by making the amyloid that we ultimately call Alzheimer's disease. And then number three, they make it in response to challenge by toxins. So when you have certain toxins, and some of these, for example, heavy metals, things like mercury, but also things like mycotoxins. So if you look at it, what we call Alzheimer's disease is really a pathology that is associated with, interestingly, a protective effect where your brain responds to metabolic perturbations that include inflammation or infection, which is for type 1, which, which includes trophic withdrawal, type 2, or which includes exposure to toxins, type 3. And we see these as three different Alzheimer's diseases, essentially. And we've even seen people who have some of type 1 and some of type 2, for example, or some of type 2 and some of type 3, for example. So now we can look at the different things. Instead of just, as Jeff Bland says, name and blame, say, okay, it's Alzheimer's, nothing we can do about it, you can now ask, why did your brain make that response? What was the cause? And now let's alter that cause and let's address it. We are talking with Dr. Daly Bredesen, MD neurologist from the Mary S. Easton Center for Alzheimer's Disease Research in UCLA and also at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging on Alzheimer's disease and an integrative approach. And you said a, a lot right there. And so I think, and I just want to share with the listeners, I'll have a link to this article. And I would very much encourage you, if you wanted to bring something to your doctor, um, this article, especially the table one, which I just wanted to highlight a little bit here, because it goes over some of your assessments and treatments. Now, for example, in blood sugar, your goal is to get a fasting insulin uh, below seven and a hemoglobin A1C of 5.5. That's what you're trying to achieve by diet. Is that correct? That's part of it. That's right. Right. And the C-reactive protein would be a general marker of inflammation you're trying to keep below one. Now, what's the AG ratio? I know the albumin globulin ratio, but what is it higher than that? Why is that significant? Right. And I should say these things are dynamic. So we're finding out more and more and more. We're adding new things to it. And we realized, and we've had over a thousand emails, calls, etc., from around the world about how do we do this best, and it is it is evolving. So what we've actually done is to set up a website, and it'll be it'll be live in about a week. 
so people will be able to go to, it's called mpitherapeutics.com, and they'll be able to look and look at all these different things as they evolve. So it'll be much easier to keep up with this. But to get back to your point about the AG ratio, so albumin to globulin ratio is another good marker for inflammation. And it's one that's been used for years, and actually Dr. Ken Seaton used this for years to look at people who had had uh, mild inflammation. This was even prior to HSCRPs. Uh, and so um, when it falls below about 1.8, and you'd really like to see it up at you know 1.8 to 2, when it falls below that, what it means is that uh, you've, you're generating more globulin, you're producing usually in response to inflammation and therefore at the expense of your albumin. The second thing that it does, and the other reason I like to look at the albumin to globulin ratio in addition to other markers, is that if you have some compromise of the liver and you are decreasing your overall amount of albumin you're producing, we like to see the albumin uh, over 4.5 then you're decreasing your ability to carry away the amyloid. So you're making amyloid all the time, and you're actually uh, disposing it, and it's actually carried uh, a number of ways, but it's carried largely by your albumin. So if you have an albumin that's down at you know, 3.9, 4.0, you are not going to be as efficient at carrying this away. And by the way, very interesting studies uh, from Dr. Milan Fiala, uh, this received uh, the paper of the year a few years ago from the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, in which he showed that if you isolate peripheral blood mononuclear cells and simply challenge them with A-beta and ask, can you phagocytose and remove the A-beta from the circulation, what he found is that virtually everybody with Alzheimer's has a very poor ability to remove the A-beta from their circulation. Uh, and on the other hand, the people who are now being treated successfully, we can show that, in fact, they go right to the normal level. They're very, very good. And this has to do, again, with the status of inflammation. Interestingly, whether you are too high with inflammation, you've got an ongoing inflammatory uh, activity in your body, or whether, in fact, very low, lower than normal, where you're not good at mounting an inflammatory response, either of those is associated with Alzheimer's, and either of those is associated with a poor ability to clear amyloid. I'd like to ask a couple of questions that most traditional doctors don't assess. And so how do you, how do you assess hormonal balance? You just do serum levels of all the, the standard sex hormones and replace them, or how, how do you do that? It's a very good point. And so, again, trying to just get all these things together, we took a simple approach initially. These are all evolving. And, of course, 24-hour urines are probably the best way to assess hormonal balance. Some people, of course, like to do it with saliva. We initially just asked people because it was possible for them through their physicians to get uh, serum levels of these. Mm -hmm. And the goal here, again, was not to go to the low end of normal. The idea is to optimize it. So I tell people, we're going to treat you now like a competitive athlete. We're trying to heal your brain. And so the idea is not to have someone have the, the least that's considered normal. And as you know, as a simple example, you can literally suffer all sorts of 
side effects of B12 deficiency while having a, quote, normal B12. If yours is, say, 300, that is, quote, within normal limits. But it's certainly not optimal. Same thing for homocysteine. Having a homocysteine of 11 um, is, quote, within normal limits, but it's certainly not optimal for brain function, and that's been shown again and again and again. So initially, um, we have used serum values, but certainly, uh, you know, if, if one is, uh, is okay with the idea of getting 24-hour urines, then that's, that's great. That's even better. So your levels are quite, they're, they're higher, and I'm glad you said we want to go into the higher range of normals. Now, how, how do you assess gut health? Because there's a million ways to do it. Stool exams, uh, comprehensive stool exams, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and I think stool exams are actually a wonderful idea. What we have done typically is to look at Cyrex 2 initially and Cyrex. So typically I suggest people get Cyrex 2, 3, and 20. And, and by the way, I have, no, uh, I have no relationship with Cyrex. I have no, uh, you know, no financial relationship with Cyrex. I've used it because other physicians have suggested it as a, as a good way to go, and we've had uh, good results with Cyrex. Of course, as you said, there are other ways to do this. But what I find helpful is if, there, if there's no evidence of, uh, of leaky gut and no evidence of leaky blood-brain barrier and no evidence of any gluten intolerance, um, then we're very interested in having people get on both probiotics and prebiotics. On the other hand, as you know, to start these right away in the presence of leaky gut is not a good idea and can certainly enhance the inflammation. So we want to check ahead of time to make sure that people don't have a leaky gut. And as you know, it's a very common problem and unquestionably one that contributes to inflammation and thus contributes to cognitive decline. That's interesting. I haven't. That's a new one on me. I mean, most of these tests we do in our office, but the Thyrex test I haven't. I haven't heard of. So that's good. That's a. That's a new one. Let's get to some things that people can actually. Well, that did they do in your program? And I got to Maybe I should back up. I. I don't quite understand. Is there a clinic at the at, at UCLA or the uh, Buck Institute that where these people come? Can you explain that part first, and then I'll get into what people can do. Yeah, that's a very good point, and this has been the, the common question. You know, where's the clinic I go to to get this done? So the issue here is, you know, this has come from 25 years of work with test tubes and transgenic mice and fruit flies and cells and things like that. So we have not had the infrastructure to get this done. So what we've done with these first over 100 people is to work with their physicians, and typically either a functional medicine physician, an integrated physician, sometimes a neurologist, whoever is working with these people. So what we've done then is, is not to be practicing medicine with them, but to be providing medical information, providing information on the research that can be used by their physicians. So we are now working with a group to set up uh, a national and hopefully ultimately international group. We're also working with a group uh, from, uh, from the UK and also uh, with a group from uh, China. And the idea here is to set up a network of physicians that will have access to this information and that will be able to treat people who are early in early stages of cognitive decline. I mean, it, it would be sort of like they went and looked at your table one and copied those tests and gave them to their patients. Is that kind of it? All right. I wish it were that simple. <laughs> uh, no. So the idea here is to provide training. The, the science behind this, why there, there are a lot of nuances. We've had a couple of people who've 
said, oh, I, I went to the table and I just tried to do a few of these things and, and uh, where do I buy this and where do I buy that? So it, it's, it, first of all, it's evolving. Second of all, there's a lot of basic research behind this. Why are we, uh, you know, why are we doing part A, B, C, D, E, etc.? Why do you need to do the number of things that you do? Those sorts of things. Um, so the idea here is to look at the metabolic profiling. And in fact, a number of people have said, well, if I just do one thing, what's the one thing I should do? And the one thing you should do is get your numbers evaluated. See where you stand and see where, where things, what would have to be changed to optimize your metabolic status. Let me just ask you a few questions, and I know you've been very kind to talk to me with a cold. And um, Let me ask you about how do you assess for heavy metals? Do you do a chelation challenge, or do you just do urine levels, serum levels? What, what is it right. that you do? It's a great question, and again, and I apologize for the cold here. My, my voice is not up to the usual, so I apologize for that. But for heavy metals, there are a couple of ways to go. I, again, I have no relationship with Quicksilver, but I believe that it's, it's one of the good tests available today um, because uh, Dr. Shade and his group have done some wonderful research over the years and looked at ways to uh, separate inorganic, for example, from organic mercury. They have uh, two tests that we'd like to have the patients run. Uh, one is uh, the so-called tri-test for mercury. Um, the other one is a metals test that looks at 19 different metals and metalloids. Um, and I've found that very helpful. On the other hand, um, some people prefer to, uh, the six-hour uh, urine samples. Some people like to do it with chelation, without. Of course, with chelation has some advantages, but also some disadvantages. Uh, so uh, right now, what we're doing, we're asking people to get Quicksilver if possible, and if not, to do either a urine test or at least a serum test for these metals. I think one thing I want to get across, or hopefully that I get across or you get across, is that there's really hope for Alzheimer's disease patients, even if they've got it. Is that correct? Or am I stretching? Yeah, and I realize that this goes against what's listed on websites and what you hear on TV and all that sort of stuff. But what we've seen again and again and what we published last year suggests that there absolutely is hope, and especially the earlier the better. So. As you know, you don't just show up on day one with full-blown Alzheimer's disease. You go through a period where you're at risk, but you are normal cognitively, followed by a period what's called SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. And by definition, that means that you know that there have been changes, but that on, on testing, they're not showing it yet. And part of the reason, of course, is our testing tends to be not very sensitive. So people, again, will be told, yeah, well, you're still within normal limits. And so, so for example, I had one guy tell me, well, wait a minute. You know, I, was, I spent my life at the 99th percentile winning math contests and things like that, and now they're telling me I'm at the 50th percentile, so everything's fine. Well, no, he knows that, that things aren't fine. Well, by definition, that is called SCI. And if the, the tests are sensitive enough, then it will be called MCI. So that's the third part where you now have mild cognitive impairment. By definition there, you're still able to do your activities of daily living. However, you're already now, you know that there's something wrong, and the tests are picking it up as well. And then the fourth stage now is finally what we would call Alzheimer's disease, where you actually have a, a decrease in the ability to do your activities of daily living. So what we've seen is improvements in people who are in all those stages except 
late Alzheimer's. So the people who are who are who are you know who are far progressed in Alzheimer's, we've not seen much in the way of improvement. I have had a couple of emails people saying that that their relatives uh, you know, did some of the things that we suggested and they saw some improvements, but we have no objective data on those yet. And so, what we, of course, what we'd like to do and what we suggested in the paper um, is to do a larger clinical trial. Now, ironically, this all started in 2011 with a proposal we made to do the first comprehensive clinical trial, and this was to be for MCI, for pre-Alzheimer's disease. And we submitted this um, for the public and private IRBs in Australia, and they both uh, decided not to allow us to do this test because they said it's too complicated and that you just need to do one drug at a time. And the ar argument we made is, well, wait a minute, that Alzheimer's disease isn't that simple. And so to, to have an impact on it, we would like to affect multiple things at once. So ironically, we're ending up trying to get back to where we started, which is the proposal for a uh, double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trial that now has many variables instead of just one variable. I think that's the way what we would call programmatics we see as the way of the future. Instead of saying, here, you've got a problem, take this pill, it's, it's here, take this personalized program, and then continue to optimize it over time. So that, that would be a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and that would be intense. I mean, that would be very complicated to... Um organize. Let me ask you a couple of controversial components, or not maybe not controversial to you. Medium chain triglycerides from coconut oil. There's some evidence right. that saturated fat isn't good for Alzheimer's, but right. then everybody's using coconut oil. Tell me your yeah. opinion. Yeah, you know, this is interesting because everyone's quoting this, that, and the other, and the problem is everything we look at is changing one variable. And so the problem is if you've, got a, if you've got a problem that needs many variables changed to have an impact, let's imagine, for example, that it takes, you know, let's say it takes 36 things to change Alzheimer's, and that no one of them by itself has a statistically significant effect. How are you going to find out if that helps? The only, you can't just do each thing by itself. So what you're going to have to do is a combination of things and then ask, did that combination have an effect? Once you get an effect, now you can start subtracting things. So to ask, does you know, coconut oil or other medium-chain triglycerides that this help by itself is kind of unrelated to what we're doing. What we're trying to do, however, is to change what has been typically, as you know, a carbohydrate-based metabolism into more of a lipid-based metabolism. And there, as you know, there's a lot of evidence out there that suggests that carbohydrate-based metabolism is associated with increased risk for Alzheimer's, certainly by the time you have type 2 diabetes. And even before that, just people who have high fasting blood sugars are at increased risk. So that's huge. And then the second piece is that lipid, a change to lipid-based metabolism does seem to be helpful for brain function. So that's why we recommend that people include in this overall program some access to medium-chain triglycerides, be it through coconut oil or other MCTs. Well, I, I would love to talk to you about that, I mean, that further, because as I shared with you or I put in my questions, all the Blue Zone cultures generally don't eat these higher-fat diets, generally. They, have, they right. always have some kind of stable carbohydrate that's non-processed, okay? I'm not talking right. about junk food. Yeah. So that's a little 
I mean, it's not. It's a little confusing to me because I don't see an example of these cultures that actually we want to functionally or we want to imitate because they're living a long time and they're functional and they're then they die. So let's go a couple more components we can do. Um, How about exercise? How important is that? I would say that's the least controversial of all the various things. It's been documented repeatedly that when you do exercise routinely, you do have an increase in brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and that is an important anti-Alzheimer's factor. Uh, There's no question that having exercise reduces epidemiologically the risk for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, And so I think it's pretty non-controversial that that is an important part of this overall. Again, by itself, may or may not help. But as far as one of the 36 holes, absolutely. How about sleep? What happens during sleep? Because I'm, you know, I, I I work real hard, so I probably yeah. I, I probably lost a few brain cells from not sleeping enough. How how does that affect it? Yeah, you and I have the same problem. <laughs> um, I tend to you know get my most work done when people are being quiet between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. And I know it's not good for me. It's something I'm trying to fix with my New Year's resolutions this year. Uh, and of course, anyone who's been an intern knows that lacking sleep is horrible for you. Uh, so uh, that, that this is a very important one. And as you know, in our culture, it's a badge of honor to say, I worked all night on this. I really worked hard. And therefore, you know, I must be a good person because I worked all night. Well, unfortunately, you're doing yourself a tremendous disservice. Um, I have, so I have a book that's coming out on, uh, on this whole study and, and what we've seen with all these people and all the nuances of how to do this. And, and one of the chapters is how to give yourself Alzheimer's disease. And of course, in reality, you wouldn't want to do that, but it's good to go through all the things that one would do so that you can know not to do those things. And of course, one of the things you can do the best to damage your cognition is to make sure that you get a very poor sleep for a number of reasons. I mean, for example, just melatonin alone has been used in a clinical trial. Uh, and melatonin does seem to help and does seem to reduce a beta, for example. Again, by itself, it's not going to do much. But you want to make sure, and, and as a number of people have pointed out, you really want to, if possible, get a seven or eight hours of sleep a night. You would like to get to bed before midnight, preferably. You'd like to get deep sleep. And of course, sleep apnea, one of the biggest problems where people don't know they have sleep apnea. And, and that needs to be checked, and that's something, again, that's, that's in the paper. Um, very important to know whether you have sleep apnea and to fix that if you do. Well, <laughs> maybe we'll end on that one because now I'll get depressed about <laughs> um, So, uh, Dr. Bredesen, um, it, I mean, I, I see a lot of hope for people, and I actually have this article out in our waiting room, and I, and I did a little summary in the front of it because, and, you, and I can tell you, I print up about 20 of these whole articles, and, and they're gone in a week, every week because um, people right. are really, really interested in this topic. So I, I'm trying to picture the bigger picture. I understand what you're doing, but where is it that people are going to go eventually to get channeled to do these appropriate tests and, and, and do you have study at your facility in Novato? I've had patients ask me that they would go and be part of it. I mean, you know, so. Right. So a couple things that you can do um, for, for what the, the easiest thing is to go to the website, mpitherapeutics.com, which will be up, as I say, in about a week. That will lead you to a network of practitioners who will be up to date with this. 
Also, it will give you an up-to-date as, as we evolve. And we've got there's more papers coming out on this, by the way. So you know, follow-ups from the people that we described initially um, to show you know, uh, marked objective improvements that we can uh, show in these people. Uh, so the first thing to do would be to go to that. The second thing is there is a what's called the Sonoma Immersion Project, um, which is uh, which is set up through the Buck Institute, uh, and there have been three of them. We had one in August, November, and December, um, and there will be more of these as time goes on. And those are four-day immersion programs where you come and we go through all the science on this and all the various things. Um, and we've had people and uh, several dozen people come through that now. Uh, but there will be more and more. We've had a number of practitioners write uh, to say that they are going to start practicing this, and we're going to have uh, classes to train physicians in these various areas. And as you alluded to, there there are a lot of different issues right now. You know, one of the common things you hear is coconut oil is going to make my cholesterol go up. Well, as you know, it actually has been shown to come back down to where it was after about three months. So in the long run, not a big problem. And so there are many, many of these things out there. Uh, things are changing. This is you know, 21st century medicine is going to be about programmatics and larger data sets, not about single pill and one size fits all, as you know. That immersion program, I, is that for, was that four-day program for the public or for yes. professionals? Okay, so they could contact the Buck Institute? Yes. The person who is setting that up is Denise Kalos. Right. And, and, for, and how much does that cost for the person to go there for four days? So for the, the one that they've had, um, had, four days has been $7,500, and that's been actually mostly hotel, meal, and the various people coming through. So that's strictly educational, not getting any blood drawn or anything like that. That's just educational, correct? That is for, that is correct, yes. That is that is for the four days. Okay. I think um, anything else you'd like to, to say about Alzheimer's and the public and hope and well I'd like to reiterate your comment that we have been waiting for uh, there to be hope for cognitive decline for years and I think we are at the beginning of that now and of course a lot of work is left to be done a lot more research a lot of optimizing uh, but I think that we can be much more optimistic than we were even a couple of years ago well, Dr. Brennison, thank you for wearing through your, your cold. I greatly appreciate you taking the extra time to doing this. And so we will talk soon. And I want to like to thank the audience for listening to this edition of Staying Healthy Today show. And remember, you can listen to this podcast on my website, stayinghealthyday.com. It will be uploaded to iTunes, and there will be links to the websites that Dr. Brennison talked about. So until next time, stay and be well. Mm-hmm.